0: In 2016, I launched this show, Unthinkable, with a simple blog post. It was titled, How to Work in Marketing When You're Bothered by Suck. Because I was. And I am. And through it all, I've seen the power of one concept again and again. Resonance. If you want to build bigger, innovate faster, or reach higher, learn to resonate deeper. And while creating resonant content itself is a difficult craft, but I still think a learned one, just as difficult today or at least as elusive is finding resonant content in a world where everybody's optimizing for reach and gaming systems like google search results and the algorithms of a social network it's really difficult to figure out what people in your profession that you would admire or learn from are actually reading and paying attention to and that's why i'm so excited to partner with a new type of b2b media company the juice for a q4 sponsorship this year the juice is trying to solve that discoverability problem The Juice has curated a library of content specifically for marketers and sales professionals and suggests both popular content and, if you become a registered user, content tailored to your job function. They're trying to be the Spotify for B2B content. It's a beautifully designed platform and they see the world like I do. There's too much junk winning out. Let's increase the signal of specifically the B2B web and find more resonant content. Learn more and sign up for free at The HQ. Hey, it's Jay, and welcome to another One Shot. These are the off week episodes I run, these short form monologue episodes, to complement our bigger narratives. This one is titled, How to Resonate. We start today with one of life's most important questions What's the best Disney film of all time? I'm here to tell you there is actually a correct answer, and that answer is a goofy movie. Stay with me. It's going to get weirder before it gets better. A goofy movie is the best Disney film of all time, and I know this because of one fateful evening my senior year in college. It was early August, about a week before most students get to the school, and my friends and I had decided to rent a house off campus for the year. Among students, it was known as the Blue House, but it was equal parts light blue moldy gray and dusty brown the place was like a hundred years old its bones were sturdy but with the body by uncle jerry your crotchety relative who makes a shocking array of noises when he sits down this house's steps would creak the windows were cracked the front balcony where we'd often hang out with five six or twelve friends was sloping dangerously downward off the house If most balconies look like the top of a letter F, this one was doing its best K impression, and not the top part. The backyard was mostly mud, with a random dumpster that we found sitting there already when we moved in. We later found out that inside that dumpster was a dead possum, which only made our love for a goofy movie grow, given the animatronic possums in the movie. Still with me? We're almost there. It's still going to get weirder, but we're almost there. Anyways, the Blue House was three stories of off-campus peril and possibility, and we were kings of the castle. Our first weekend in the house, I was hanging out on the third floor with housemates Jody, Jake, Josh, and Tim. By the way, in the house, we also had a Joe and Mark, so that made us the five J's, J, Jody, Jake, Josh, and Joe, and also Mark and Tim. Anyway, for some reason that night, somebody in that smaller contingency mentioned a Goofy movie, and we were like, oh man, we haven't seen that in forever, do you remember that movie? So we found it online and watched it. No big deal. Just some 21-year-olds, totally sober, watching Goofy be Goofy. This film has everything. Animatronic possums, high school stereotypes, pithy life lessons about family and love, Pauly Shore, and then in Act 3, the culmination of the entire Goofy ride There's the Powerline concert. Oh, the Powerline concert. The character Powerline, who's voiced by singer Tevin Campbell, is a kind of Michael Jackson meets Vanilla Ice meets Humanoid Dog. He sounds terrifying, but he sounds glorious. Anywho, Goofy ends up on stage at the Powerline concert. It's a long story. But predictably, once he lands on stage, he's pretty awkward about it, and Powerline just sort of gapes at this random, also maybe a dog character, who just crashed his stadium tour. Watching from the rafters above is Goofy's son, Max. When he sees how awkward his dad is being on stage with this pop idol, he shouts down from the rafters, Hey dad, dad, do the perfect cast. The perfect cast is this hilarious and complicated motion that Goofy does as a windup, to casting his fishing line when he goes fishing. Oh, right. Uh, A major storyline in the film is how Goofy is worried that he's going to lose his son Max to drugs and rock and roll and girls and other college things. And so he yanks Max away from his friends one summer as a high school student to go on a fishing trip. But Max lies to the girl that he likes and is leaving and says that he's really going to the Powerline concert in LA, then does everything he can to trick his dad into taking him to the Powerline concert. Because high school. So, on stage with Powerline, Goofy does the perfect cast, and impressed, Powerline joins in. Back at the Blue House, we watched this, grinning ear to ear, a bunch of college seniors trying desperately to stave off the real world for a little while longer. Naturally, being of sober mind and nostalgic heart, h- half of that statement is true, we decided we're going to learn the perfect cast. And so we did. We memorized the dance exactly as it appeared on screen. Spoiler alert, we didn't. We showed the dance to our housemates, and they thought it was so cool. They didn't. And every so often at parties, one of the guys who was there that first fateful night would shout to the rest of us, Hey, hey guys, you want to do the perfect cast? And so we would. And then all our friends would gather around us and watch and think we were so cool. They didn't. They really didn't. Truly didn't. And that, my friend, is why a Goofy movie is the best Disney film of all time. Of course, you might be thinking a couple things. Thing number one. Jay, you're right. That dance is so cool and you must have looked even cooler doing it. Thank you. I value your opinion and you are correct. Thing number two. But Jay, that is not the best Disney film of all time. The best Disney film is Moana or Frozen or Snow White. Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Wally, Soul, whatever. Thank you. I value your opinion. But you are wrong. Also wrong, Harper's Bazaar, Rotten Tomatoes, 17, The Independent, Good Housekeeping, Cosmopolitan, and every listed ranking of the 875 million Google search results for best Disney film of all time. Their picks are wrong. A goofy movie is correct. I just told you why. All right, so what the heck is going on here? If the best option actually existed, everyone would agree. Our own personal experiences of the world wouldn't matter at all. Instead, we'd use some kind of universally accepted list of criteria to rank each film and then declare the one with the most points or most favorable ranking the best. Of course, people aren't objective, we're subjective, we're emotional. We can't separate ourselves from our worldviews and our own personal experiences and narratives. As a result, we can't agree in objective fashion about which is the best film or the best in any category at all. The best restaurant, the best dish, the best team, the best fashion brand, the best actor, the best city, color, podcast, newsletter, software, accountant, you name it. We can't agree on what's best, even though each of us will absolutely say freely and confidently that we know the one that's best, at least according to us. So maybe when we declare something the best, we aren't really thinking about what's best at all. No, I think when most people declare something the best, what they're actually saying is, that is my favorite. And if that's true, if your favorite thing supersedes any other types of things, then we kind of have to rethink how we usually approach our work because we spend a shocking amount of time trying to prove to ourselves and to others that we are, in fact, the best or at least great. Now, I get it. We want to be the best at our jobs, in our categories, in the minds of those we serve because we think that's how to grow our businesses and leave our legacies. We want others to adore our work as a result. Not just followers, superfans. Not just customers, evangelists. Not just coworkers, teammates. Not just new hires, difference makers. If only they knew we were the best, if only we could make them see, then we'd be hugely successful. If only they were aware of our greatness. The thing is, awareness is just a proxy for what we really want. Affinity. We just assume that if someone knew we existed they'd love us. Why not focus less on the knows we exist portion of the equation and much more on the love us part? Instead of obsessing over reach, focus on resonance. And that's the core of it. We work so hard trying to be relevant, we've stopped trying to be resonant. But that's the job. That's the work. That serves others better and very deeply, but also it's how we help ourselves too. Others make decisions to pick you, stick with you, and stick up for you based on what resonates. Resonance supersedes everything. So the question in all of this is how? How do we create work that resonates? What is within our control and where do we focus our efforts? And to be honest, I have no idea, but it feels worthwhile to figure this out. So let's start by trying to picture in our minds the challenge and the work end to end. Imagine a flywheel divided into four different pieces. We can call this the flywheel of favoritism. I like flywheels for two different reasons. First, that circular spinning wheel illustrates how our work should compound. Everything that we do adds up to spin the wheel faster. The benefits of today's work shouldn't just be today's results. Today's work should also make tomorrow's work and therefore results better and easier. But too often, work feels like digging holes in dry sand. The moment we aren't shipping something or reactively hustling, it all caves in. Flywheels, though, are about compounding sustained momentum. Second, I like flywheels because the process doesn't have to be linear. That's usually a false hope in our work anyway, especially with creative work. With a flywheel, you can focus your efforts anywhere along the outside of the wheel. Any effort you exert will make the whole thing spin faster. This fits the reality of our work a lot better than some kind of prescriptive list starting at number one. Instead, a flywheel-based system promises the chance to slowly evolve the way we work by focusing on the parts you can control right now. No need to start at step one because really any improvement you can possibly make today within your constraints is worth the investment. For example, you might recognize that the very idea or message driving your work Itself is what needs to be improved or reinvented. But that might take a lot of time, research, testing, discussions, or internal buy in from your organization. But you have to deliver each week. So why not apply a little force along the wheel to make the experience better? You might still be, I don't know, blogging about a topic that you don't love, or maybe your brand's overall message isn't exactly it. But at least inside the paragraphs that you're writing today, you can make them slightly better, open with a story, an analogy, something multimedia embedded in the blog post. You get the idea. You might not be able to change the overall brand message right now, but by applying a little force to the experience, the way that message is delivered, the entire flywheel can spin faster. Okay, so let's break down what's in our minds. Picture that flywheel, a circle spinning clockwise from left to right, faster and faster as you do the work okay from the top left to top right bottom right and bottom left let's go around all four quadrants of this flywheel the top left the idea the top right the experience the idea leads into some kind of experience of that idea which then leads into the bottom right of this flywheel the relationship as you hold people's attention a relationship forms and then the bottom left you've spun all the way around the wheel the learning some kind of insights that you can extract based on the relationship based on the work to then improve your ideas idea experience relationship learning idea experience relationship learning say something that matters the idea hold their attention the experience connect emotionally the relationship and reinvent the experience to avoid stagnation, the learning. That lets you keep honing your ideas and keep sharing new ideas to say something that matters, and on and on, this wheel spins. And the result, the core of it, is you create passionate fans. If you say something that matters, hold their attention, connect emotionally, and continually reinvent and refresh the experience, you will create passionate fans. And by the way, if you'd like to dive deeper into each of these sections and see a visual, check your show notes for a link to a blog post where I put this script for this episode and you also have the visual, the flywheel of favoritism, pictured for you. We all want others to appreciate what we do. We want to grow our businesses or leave our legacies. To do so, we spend a lot of time trying to climb some kind of imaginary ladder where we beat out the competition or, or maybe prove to ourselves that we're good. The pinnacle, we think, is to be the best. But this desire to be the best focuses our work on the wrong things. Instead of doing something others truly adore and appreciate, we start to focus on the optics, on vanity metrics. We overvalue one small piece of the relationship, like initial interest, awareness, and reach. All proxies for what we really want, like affinity and resonance. Look, I'm not too crazy. I'll qualify it. I'm not too crazy. I know that a goofy movie wouldn't outrank the classics in any objective list. But here's the thing. Not only does a truly objective ranking of Disney films not exist, it wouldn't matter if it did. That is my favorite Disney film. And so, in my mind, it's the best. It's a purely personal choice, driven by emotion and connection. Quite literally, something about my experience with the film resonated with me. In other words, reverberated off me. It reflects who I am. See, favorite things are part of our identities. And when we tell someone, that's the best in my opinion, that's my favorite, we're self-expressing. Favorite things become part of our identities. That is how we as humans make choices. Whether you're buying business software, you're hiring an accountant or a freelance writer, or you're picking a film to watch. That approach to decisions is what causes others to pick you, stick with you, and stick up for you. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're the best. That's not actually the goal. It's not even possible to determine, nor would it matter if it was. So what if we all stopped focusing on being visible and learned how to be memorable? What if we stopped agonizing over being relevant and learned to be resonant? Don't be the best, be their favorite. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Every time you do, you're supporting an independent podcast. I'm working really hard to make this show possible for you. So here's two small requests so you can support the show even further. One, please subscribe to my free newsletter. I send it every Friday and it involves stories very similar to the one shots and other things I share like my slow media suggestion of the week, something that resonates deeper than the social feeds to get you out of social media, the slow media suggestion of the week. And other exclusive invitations and bonuses for things I'm working on, as well as link to every episode of this show so you never miss it. You can subscribe at jayakonzo.com or check your show notes for a link. The second way you can support this show is to shout out our sponsor on Twitter or anywhere you find them. Register and shout them out. They're the juice. The juice believes, like I do, that most of the visible stuff is not actually the most resonant stuff. It's just been optimized for search or social to spread, but not necessarily help us, not challenge our thinking or elevate the way we work as marketing or sales professionals. And so the juice is becoming the Spotify of B2B, all kinds of content from tens of thousands of B2B sources around the internet, and they've curated the best and most popular based on your peer set and then based on your profile they give you content playlists specific to your job you can also create your own content playlist as well so stop reading all that junk that you find at the top of the search results who cares what's going viral because it plays into our extreme emotions on social find the most deeply resonant work and the highest impact work for marketing and sales professionals visit thejuicehq.com and give them a shout out or tell them we sent you All these links, again, are in your show notes. Okay, that's it for this one shot. We're back next time with a brand new narrative style episode. I can't wait for that one. We're still exploring what it takes to resonate and who has done that. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep making what matters. See ya.